and welcome into the latest edition of the Sharpshooters. I'm David Schuster, and this podcast is brought to you by DraftKings. I'll have an interview with Bulls radio play-by-play announcer Chuck Swirsky in just a little bit. But first, let's catch you up on what's happened with the Bulls and the rest of the NBA. Now, with Monday night's loss to the 76ers, the Bulls are 1-5 since the All-Star break, and they have dropped from the top overall seed in the East down to number four. And their current lead over number five, Boston, is just a half a game, with Cleveland just a game and one half further back. So obviously, postseason seedings are now in effect. And with Monday night's victory, Joel Embiid is now 11-0 and in his career against the Bulls. Obviously, he has played against them for the last three and a half years now. He had some injuries early on in his career. He didn't go against them. But ever since he's returned to the court, he is undefeated against the Chicago Bulls. And honestly, they have absolutely no answer against them. Now, DeMar DeRozan, who was playing fantastic and was the February player of the month, he's starting to tail off a little here in March. His shooting percentage has gone down. It looks like he's wearing down a little bit, and why not? He's been carrying the load all season long. Zach Levine, obviously not 100%. It sure looks like that knee is bothering him to some degree. Alex Caruso and Lonzo Ball, they are going to come back. Uh, Caruso will be first. Ball will be much uh, later on, probably sometime in April. But even when they do come back, it just looks like the Bulls are shorthanded against some of the other top teams in the East. By the way, the 76ers are now 5-0 and when James Harden has been on the court. So that combination of Harden and uh, Embiid has been unbeatable so far. Boston, They've won eight of their last 10 games. They're moving up the uh, seedings very quickly. Milwaukee, the defending champions, they've won four straight games. And Miami, they continue to lead the pack in the East. They lead the East currently by three games. And then there's Brooklyn. A lot of people still think Brooklyn's going to come out of the East when it's all said and done. That is, if they're healthy. And they are maybe the scariest number 11 seed maybe in the history of basketball. Again, Kevin Durant has come back over the last couple of games. He's scoring his 30 points a game. Kyrie Irving, you know, he's he's still not playing home games, but that might change before it's all said and done. Ben Simmons is probably going to be on the court within the next couple of weeks. So, again, it's a real mystery what's going to happen with the Brooklyn Nets when it's all said and done, when they're completely healthy. But, again, right now as a number 11 seed, you know, and they're going to have to probably at this juncture be in one of the play-in games. But if they get in against the number one team, let's just say it's Miami and Brooklyn, that, that might be an incredible series for a number one against a number eight overall. All right, we'll talk about the Western Conference in just a bit. But again, I had a chance to sit down with Chuck Swirsky, who I've worked with on and off for a long, long time. Anyway, here's my interview with the Bulls play-by-play radio announcer. All right, Chuck, uh, right now uh, we're recording this whatever day this is, but the Eastern Conference standings is pretty exciting because it's really bunched up. What do you make of the entire Eastern Conference landscape? Well, number one, I think, David, that um, this is so competitive. It reminds me, really, I'm dating myself, but this reminds me of the late 80s, 90s when the Bulls were just starting to come into play as a legitimate contender, and you had Detroit, you had Philly, you had Boston, you had Cleveland, you had New York. And I'm not comparing those teams because it's a different style of play altogether. But what I am telling you is that from one to about nine, maybe even 10 a little bit, that if you look at the standings today, especially with this play-in game, 
that I think it brings hope to a lot of franchises. And I do think things run in cycles. The Western cycle took a lot longer to dissipate than perhaps that I thought it would. But having said that, I think the East Eastern Conference now is coming in as a legit threat in the uh, NBA landscape. I might be in the minority. I actually like the play-in thing. I, I thought it was pretty good last year. I anticipate it'll probably be pretty good. There's some teams down there, even in the West, the Lakers, they're going to be in a play-in game. How, how exciting is that for the league? What are your thoughts on that? Well, for a team like Memphis, I think it helped because they won not one but two play-in games, really, if you think about it. And then they lost to Utah in the first round of the playoffs. And you look at the experience they gained, and it carried over to this year. Having said that, David, if you put yourself in a position as a head coach, okay, David Schuster, head coach of a team that finished seventh or eighth and then wound up losing that 7-8 game and then by some chance ran into a red-hot player that was like the eighth, ninth, tenth guy in a rotation. He had the game of his life, and all of a sudden, you're the seventh seed and you're watching six days later and here your job is on the line and your GM is ticked off at you the owners ticked off at you and it gives the players an excuse to come out and start you know talking about you I I I understand where you're coming from I think it's great from a fan standpoint from an interest standpoint from a box office standpoint and that's what it's all about money as we know but I'm just saying that for for head coaches whose job could or couldn't be on the line a little bit, it gets really fragile. Yeah, it's sort of like the NCAA, one and, got, one and done. You could be out in the very first round. But anyway, that's a whole different subject. Um, you mentioned Memphis. I'm going to jump all over the place here. John Morant, I mean, what a pleasure. What an absolute pleasure. I was talking to Pete Pranica, and he has goosebumps watching this kid on, on a daily basis. Why not? He's incredibly talented. What are your thoughts on, on watching this kid, even as periodically as you do? Well, the first time I saw him play, I thought of Allen Iverson immediately. Now, a lot of people have come into play with Derrick Rose, and maybe, maybe not. I think Derrick was physically a little bit more stronger, although Jean Morant is deceiving along those lines. You look at his body and the wiry frame that he has, and Derek was muscular from you know the torso area. But having said that, I will say that when you look at Jean Morant and compare where he was picked second overall, Zion Williamson was the overwhelming number one pick by everyone. And I dare say if you ask any franchise before all this developed, who would you take, Zion or Jean Morant? I'd say 90% would have taken Williamson just because of the uniqueness that he brings or he brought to the floor at Duke, but also, at, again, at the box office. I mean, you saw what happened with New Orleans. The moment they got the number one pick, they started selling season tickets. It was crazy. They put that video online on social media. Well, if you go back to 2007, Greg Oden and Kevin Durant. And Greg Oden, Ohio State, big guy, being compared to a lot of players because he was a defensive-minded player. And you could really build around that type of player in 2007. Not today, but 2007. And I dare say probably more than 90% would have taken Greg Oden in the draft. He, like Zion, suffer injuries. Unfortunately for Greg, it cost his career. Jury's still out on Williamson. 
But who was the second player taken in the draft? Kevin Durant. So, David, you've been around. You know this. You just don't know. Yeah, it is eerily similar to that draft. Maybe maybe sometimes it's better to be number two. Who knows? Um, MVP race this year. I mean, you could make a strong case for five guys in the Eastern Conference alone, including, obviously, DeMar DeRozan here. Um, I mean, you could make it for Ja down in Memphis. You could make it... Uh, for um, certainly Embiid. You can make it once again for Jokic. You can always make it for Giannis, just like Michael. He could be the MVP every season. It's sort of fun to, you know, throw all those names in there. And ultimately, I don't think it'll be decided until probably the final three or four weeks of the season. I would agree, or even perhaps even later. I think, you know, if Memphis continues to have the run, if they can get the second seed, I think Jean Morant right now, along with DeMar DeRozan, are the two unknowns on how viewers look now, I think the run DeMar had in February catapulted him and put him in a position, Dave, where you have to have a serious look at a top three ballot for DeMar DeRozan. Mm-hmm. Having, again, looking at the players you just named, there is a legitimate argument that you could go, whether it's for Giannis again. And what happens is, and, and we saw this with LeBron, we saw this with Jordan, we take these players, unfortunately, for granted. Oh, he's having another 29, 11, and 7 year. You know, seriously, I mean, you know, I mean, you look at what LeBron's doing on a bad Laker team, but he's putting up huge numbers, really impressive numbers for what, a 35, 36 year old player in this league. But Jokic is having a magnificent year. It's going to be very interesting because if a guy votes, or a reporter votes for uh, Jokic, I got that. If a reporter votes for DeRozan, I got that. If a reporter votes for you know, Embiid, that's great. So it's not like you know there is an overwhelming pick right now and someone wants to be cute by voting for somebody who's kind of on the outside looking in. So I, I think this is up for grabs. I, I can't give you an answer right now. It's, you know, going back to the Eastern Conference, it's so weird. You know, they made this massive trade between two teams in the same division, obviously with Brooklyn and Philadelphia, which is unusual, but it, I guess it almost had to happen. So far, Philadelphia's 3-0, and Harden's on his on-court best behavior, which he can always elevate his game, and, and maybe he's trying to even get Embiid the MVP. I'm not even sure. But in the long run, who wins that trade, do you think? I mean, it's obviously up for grabs. Philly almost seems to need to win now to make that trade be in their favor. Brooklyn probably has some time because they got the first-round picks, yada, yada, yada. How did did you view that trade overall? Well, the thing that kind of bothered me a little bit, and I really, I've, I've only met him in passing. I don't know him at all. He's a great player, obviously, top 75 player. But Harden has now talked himself out of two teams, and that bothers me a lot. Because I'm saying to myself, okay, like, if this is a pattern, and right now you're right, David, he's on his honeymoon, you know, little passage of, okay, we're going from Brooklyn to Philly, and the fans are great, and Embiid's great, and boy, I love this place, and all that stuff. Let's see what happens in another month. But I will say this, I think the dynamics are much different in Philadelphia now than they were in Brooklyn. There is a lot of drama going on in Brooklyn, and I think in Philadelphia right now, he's on the same page, obviously, with Daryl Morey, the GM. And I think it has taken an enormous amount of pressure off Embiid. They're, Harden and Simmons are completely different personalities. And I think that, you know, Doc is a guy 
that can kind of lock in with a player for a few years and the player will buy in. And if this is a short window right now for Philadelphia, I think short term, 76ers probably say, you know, we got this thing. Uh, if you're Brooklyn, I think it all depends on if Kyrie Irving resigns. I think that is, that's to me the question that we have to navigate our way through because you never know with Kyrie, as we know. You never know. I mean, he came out on media day a few years ago in Boston and said, man, I love it here. I'm going to re-sign. And the fans are fired up. You know, the media's running with it. And then look what happened, you know? Yeah, he's he's mercurial, I guess. Is yes, one he of, is. One of the best words you can use to describe him. But right. he's a great, great player, obviously. arguably. Yeah, obviously. All right, two last questions. Um, we talked a little bit about DeMar. I mean, he's been amazing. This probably right now is probably his best overall season, and that's saying a lot because he's been a Hall of Fame player even to this point. What makes him so good? What also, because you're around these guys a lot more than almost anybody, what makes him the great teammate that he is on top of everything else? Well, first and foremost, I think you just said this, he, he's a great teammate, and in an ego-driven league, his ego is such that he drives himself by looking at, and believe me, he knows everything that's going on. Nothing gets past him. So he heard what you heard, what I read, what everyone knows. The moment the Bulls made this transaction with San Antonio for three years, uh, I mean, he read what we all read, or a lot of people thought, well, what are the Bulls doing? And I think it gave him an incentive to come in because he's already independently wealthy. This contract is on top of a contract on top of a contract. Um, I mean, the money is great, don't get me wrong, but this right now is to validate what he's done. And I think this year has kind of put him now on the cusp or even over the top at going into the Hall of Fame. I think that he was, I, I think going into this season, he was a Hall of Fame caliber player. I, th- I think this season sealed it. I really do, David. So I, I think he knows himself. I think he knows the game. And, David, he is really, really comfortable who DeMar DeRozan is. And at the end of the day, that's what we're all searching for. Are you comfortable with who you are? And he is. Yeah, well, his game is very consistent. A, uh, he goes against the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, the mantra of the league that you have to be a certain kind of player, three-point shooter, whatever, whatever. Can you imagine if he was coming out of USC today and he was a mid-range jumper, I wonder how many GMs in the draft would have looked at him and said, golly, you know, he shoots long twos and that's the the worst shot to take in basketball. And yeah, he can make a 15, 16 footer, but that's not how the game's played. I mean, there have been so many. So I'm glad he entered the league when he did to establish a foundation because now everyone says, great, tomorrow, do your thing. It's and, and the coaches, they, when we have these media scrums, which you attend, all these coaches rave about him. Well, like, I haven't heard one coach say, yeah, I wish he would expand his game, or, why, well, you know, if he took two or four more threes per game, then he'd be out. No, you know what? Let him go. He's DeMar DeRozan, which is fine. More than fine. All right, last question, and I've been around you, so I know the answer to this already. Your optimism for not only the NBA, but even just being around basketball in general, I mean, is, is infectious. Uh, and I'm saying that very complimentary. Just talk about that, how your love for being around the sport just sort of fuels you. Well, 
I thank you for that, David. But I'll, I'll say this: my mom was a school teacher, and um, I grew up in a single parent home. My father died when I was a kid, and my mom would stay after school, and she would at times have to stay in, as every teacher does, to um, handle students who had a tough day at the office, so to speak. And so I would, I would go to school. I would go to her school where she taught, and I would hang out in the gym, and I would just watch basketball as a little boy, and I just like absorbed everything. I think it is a great sport because it does teach teamwork. I do think you have to have five players on the floor who like and respect each other. I think if you got one or two players on the court who really weren't on the same page with each other. I think the dynamics are for a disastrous ball club. And so I love the sport. I, I marvel at the players' athleticism. David, we're from the same generation. And what we've seen in the last 40 years of the NBA is mind-boggling how gifted, physically gifted, these players are. Now, fundamentally, you could argue that some, some of these players come in the league with bad habits. But, you know, do you trade those? for what they're doing on the floor on a nightly basis. It's amazing. Well said. And as always, we do appreciate listening to Chuck, and uh, I highly advocate you hearing him on the radio. His enthusiasm is off the charts. All right, before we get out of here, let's talk a little bit about the Western Conference. Phoenix is obviously going to be the number one seed overall. However, right now, without um, uh, Chris Paul, they're not playing as well as they did earlier in the season, but they're still going to be the number one seed in the West, obviously. They currently have an eight-game lead over both Golden State and Memphis. And Golden State is really starting to slow down. Uh, Steph Curry, who was unbelievable in the first six weeks of the season, he was definitely the MVP at that juncture, but he's tailed off and he's not scoring and not shooting as well as he always has in the past. However, once you get to the real money games late in, in the season, certainly into the postseason, I wouldn't bet against them. Memphis has been unbelievable. John Morant has been John Morant is in the MVP conversation. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And right now, the Lakers, we talked about Brooklyn in the East as the number 11 seed. Well, right now, the Lakers are the number nine seed in the West. So they're likely going to be in the play-in game themselves. Everybody had the uh, Lakers and the Nets as the uh, two teams coming out of their respective conferences when the season started. Well, don't look now, but both of them are probably going to be in the play-in games when the postseason starts. As far as the MVP race, it still looks like, to me, Joel Embiid is your number one player right now. It's his uh, award to lose at this point. Nikola Jokic, who won it last year, he's been unbelievable himself. He scored 46 the other night, so obviously he's still in the conversation. Giannis Antetokounmpo in uh, Milwaukee, I mean, he's a two-time MVP. He, you know, Just like Michael Jordan, you can always say that uh, you know, Giannis could win the award every single year. DeMar DeRozan, like we talked about has carried the Bulls through the majority of the season, but he looks like he's starting to slow down. And John Morant, what a pleasure watching this guy. He is the reincarnation uh, of a young Derrick Rose. I don't think he's going to win the MVP award, but he's going to finish high up in the balloting, and he's going to be in the running for years to come. The Rookie of the Year, I don't care what anybody says, Evan Mobley is going to win that award. He's tailed off ever so slightly over the last week or 10 days, but 
no question, he's by far uh, the leading candidate for the Rookie of the Year. He, of course, is the center for the Cleveland Cavaliers. All right, thanks again for listening to The Sharpshooters, and I'll be back with another interview with somebody very pertinent in the NBA. We'll have that for you next week. Thanks for listening.